It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, it's Wednesday. The bairn has gone to nursery. The pot of Yorkshire has been drunk and we're going to take a deep dive into the decade that we haphazardly labelled the noughties and to the football of its time, the 2000s. This is the Noughties Nostalgia Podcast, episode 51. And today for you, we've got your suggestions for the best ever Premier League goalkeeper and we're going to take a look at the biggest teams to fail to qualify for the World Cup in my lifetime, at least. If you like podcasts like this, join our team on Patreon. That is patreon.com forward slash whatifootball where we have contemporary football podcasts as well as nostalgic football podcasts as well as all your lovely suggestions in our mailbag. But without further ado, let's crack on with today's show. taking a look at the best Premier League goalkeepers we've got a slew of suggestions for you and to be fair we've got four absolute standouts and four that aren't surprising whatsoever but before we launch into them we may as well take a look at some of the uh, joke answers here um, Podfather Mags asks um, Dimitri Karin mainly for his trackies um, must be before my time I can't remember him but Wikipedia says 118 Premier League appearances for Chelsea uh, my particular Chelsea goalkeeper was Ed De Hoy, if anybody can remember him, big Dutch lad. Um, and then Carlo Cudicini into the 2000s and of course Petacek, which Mags uh, mentions here because he says it's razor thin between Schmeichel, Czech and Van der Sar. Uh, one other name as well got mentioned by other people as well, but those are my top three probably. And uh, Martin McDonald says uh, Peggy Arprex had, um, not sure I've got the pronunciation on that, but he was one of many... Liverpool number twos who were shocking to say the least. Shout out for Charles Etanje as well. Um, at Mac down under suggests Massimo Taibe. And to be fair for a time, maybe the first goalkeeper to get a Man of the Match award on his debut. See the uh, win at Anfield for that two weeks before 
punching Gary Neville in the face for a cross in a 5-0 loss to Chelsea. And that obviously now iconic slip through the legs through the uh, Matt Letizia P-roller. And that was his, I think that was his Manchester United career condensed down into down to three games there and that he was gone back to Venezia, I think. Uh, maybe off on that detail slightly. This was a time where Man United were trying to replace Peter Schmeichel, obviously an irreplaceable goalkeeper, goalkeeper which we'll be discussing in a minute. And they'd settled on Mark Bosnich. Mark Bosnich got injured. Raymond van der Howe was injured as well at the time, I seem to remember. And Massimo Taibbi was number three. And <laughs> three was the magic number. Three games and he was expelled from the club never to be seen again um by all accounts had a decent enough career before and after maybe it was uh, Manchester United the problems couldn't live with the uh, tag of treble winners perhaps but a man that could Peter Schmeichel and he's our first suggestion from the likes of Maracas Flute who says felt perfect to me as a younger person because he was ferocious sorted out his defensive line out very well Gav Max says it's got to be Peter Schmeichel but Petacek is definitely in the conversation and James FF Humility here from a Liverpool fan says, simple answer this week, Peter Schmeichel. And Peter Schmeichel is my suggestion. Peter Schmeichel's a picture I put up attached to the uh, Twitter call out, call to action there um, at whatif underscore YouTube if you're wondering. Peter Schmeichel joined Manchester United for, we can now say retrospectively, peanuts. Um, You had a semi-successful time of it at home back with uh, Bromby between 1987 and 1991. Had a couple of forays into the last stages of the UEFA Cup. I think they made it to the semi-finals in 88, maybe wrong on that one. Um, Also, Euro 92 with Denmark got to the final, obviously won the tournament, one of... um, the many great goalkeepers to win the European Championships in the 90s and all-round insane presence, fantastic goalkeeper, one of the legendary goalkeepers of the 90s. We see towards the back end of the 90s, we see Buffon, we see Toldo, we see Casillas, Canizares perhaps, but Schmeichel was just a whole different beast. Not many people could uh, get get the number of him really maybe Ian Wright for a time, Robbie Fowler perhaps, maybe a little bit had joy, but there was very few people who could consistently score goals against Peter Schmeichel because even though Man United's defence at this around this time wasn't the best, Arsenal primarily had the better defensive record, maybe because of a better defence rather than the goalkeeper here, but he was just absolutely phenomenal and nobody could ever score numerous goals beyond him. Michael Owen maybe had a bit of a shout for a time, but that came and went. And of course, his Premier League record is second to none in terms of goalkeepers. Five Premier League titles and three of um, the Premier League seasons which Michael played in. He only played in about six or seven. It would have been seven, wouldn't it? And um, he conceded the least goals in three of those seven goalkeepers. An absolutely demanding presence of his uh, defence. You'd often see him... Um, clobbering his teammates. Gary Neville probably got caught the brunt of that a couple of times, probably had a um, set two with Yap stamped famously with Roy Keane as well. And um, my abiding memory of him is that FA Cup semi-final, saves the penalty and he's just closed lining players away because he wants them to get on the counter-attack and then win the game in the last minute of a, an FA Cup semi-final replay. And his presence in that box was reassuring to a team that already had proven winners, big characters. From the 94 double winning team, you've got Roy Keane, you've got Brian Robson, Mark Hughes, Pallister and Bruce, of course. From the 99 team, when the class of 92 have well and truly found their feet, you've got say. And after he left 
United, it, it's a true mark of a good goalkeeper that he's irreplaceable and takes a number of years for a club to replace. And that's exactly what Man United struggled through with Mark Bosnich, who was a very, very good goalkeeper. But he just could not live with um, the presence of Peter Schmeich. Obviously, he, he was returning to the club as a youth player. He, didn't, he rubbed a few people the wrong way. Completely different presence to Peter Schmeichel. Then you've got Fabian Bartes, who was a World Cup winner. One of the best goalkeepers in um, of his time, of the 90s. He came in maybe a little bit past his peak. Obviously, a few ricks in there. The Di Canio goal in the FA Cup, most famously. The two goals at Highbury, um, where he uh, laid it on a plate for Thierry Henry both, gate, both times there. And um, never really truly hit the heights. And he was replaced almost immediately, which um, showed how um, he didn't hit the ground running at Old Trafford. So you've got then Tim Howard, you've got Roy Carroll, and rather a rotating cast until Edwin van der Sar comes in in 2005 and really makes the position his own, the only goalkeeper who had done so for Man United since Peter Schmeichel. And then United probably did a better job of it uh, replacing van der Sar. Obviously he retires 2011, we'll get onto that later because he's one of the big four suggestions and they replaced him with David De Gea and although it took him a while to sort of get to the English game properly, he um, he was replaced quite quickly, Edwin van der Sar, with David De Gea at the same summer. Um, back to Peter Schmeichel though, some of the absolute best saves that I've ever, ever seen. He, I can't remember the opponent, but it was like a Gordon Banks style scoop over the bar in a European match in the mid-90s. Superb. You've got the trademark starfish saves against Ivan Zamorano in the Champions League in 99. You've got the one against, I think it is definitely against Newcastle, it might have been Les Ferdinand in a crucial top of the table clash, which swung the pendulum of the league title there that season. So it's the Fraser's been a goalkeeper, wins you 12 points in relation to Petr Cech there when he moved to Arsenal. Uh, didn't quite do it to Arsenal, but uh, Peter Schmeichel was one of the first proponents of that one of the most vocal goalkeepers of his era. He helped Manchester United with um, keeping this tight ship and the big band of characters that they did have. And he is the holder of the 10th most Premier League clean sheets of his time. And above him in the similar era, David Seaman, who is our second suggestion. And Joe, an Arsenal fan, admits it's probably Schmeichel who's the best Premier League goalkeeper of all time, but he's going to be biased and say... David Seaman, Harry Holland hedged his bets as well and he's also saying David Seaman as well as a few others in here and David Seaman came to Arsenal around the same time as Schmeichel did to Manchester United just a year prior by then manager George Graham in 1990 from QPR, immediately won the league in uh, 91, stuck it out through the choppy waters under likes of Bruce Rioch after George Graham also left, um, was successful in Europe, less so with that uh, Naeem goal <laughs> in the final the year after where Arsenal lost famously in extra time. The thing that helped David Seaman, as I suggested earlier, was the fact that he had a fantastic defence in front of him. You've got Nigel Winterburn, Tony Adams, Steve Bold, Lee Dixon, the famous back four that won the leagues in 89 and 91, obviously were fairly successful in cup competitions in the early 90s at the back end of George Graham's tenure and would become double winners in 98 with the with the same back four really then they would become be fairly seamlessly transitioned into Ashley Cole at left back for Nigel Winterburn Lauren for Lee Dixon at right back and you've got Saul Campbell and Cole Torrey coming in there and the only constant really in this transition from the the 
double winning team of 98 to the double winning team of 2002 was David Seaman from the old George Graham days and Seaman won two Premier League titles and in it was an outstanding record in the despite not winning the league in 1999 they conceded 17 goals and the fact that David Seaman juggled this with going quite deep into tournaments with England as well in 96 and 2002 Obviously, towards the back end, he felt a bit of burnout there in his last season, with Arsenal at least. It was in 2002-03 where we'd move on to Man City. Um, fairly old when he uh, finally retired from Man City. Obviously, Peter Schmeichel would he would uh, be replacing Peter Schmeichel in the goal for Man City there in 2003-04 season. And Seaman holds four, four for most Premier League clean sheets. Mainly, I think, even though Manchester United didn't have as good a record for clean sheets and goals conceded. It owes a lot to their style of play. It owes a lot to the better defence because you do think of Arsenal's defence, that famous four, back five at least, in the 90s were much better than even Pallister and Bruce and the full-backs that United had, Dennis Irwin, Gary Gary Neville and uh, Paul Parker as well around these times. Arsenal's defensive structures were just far more solid and as a result, obviously, even with David Seaman in that the uh, goals conceded column is often lower by Arsenal and Seaman as a result, despite Schmeichel for me being um, slightly better than David Seaman. A more contemporary suggestion was by George Spencer, big Chelsea fan, says uh, got to be Petr Cech, FT Law podcast says uh, Petr Cech for us and Dean Pope says especially prior to injury, Petr Cech um, to concede 15 in a season is incredible. Um, Harry Holland also suggests Petrček as well. And yeah, just simply that's that 15 goals conceded in one season is incredibly holds the record, obviously, for the least amount of goals conceded in a season. It was brought in by Jose Mourinho for Mourinho's first season at Chelsea in 2004-05 and immediately successful, conceded 38 goals in two Premier League seasons, which is mind-boggling really um and obviously this was when Chelsea were utterly dominant the first real threat to Manchester United's dominance of course we'd have Blackburn and Arsenal sort of coming and pinch a couple of league titles here and there Arsenal were on title number three by this point the Invincibles in 04 and Chelsea at this stage Mourinho comes in takes over the mantle and Chelsea were on for three in a row which is when Petrček suffered his head injury and um he's no wonder, no coincidence really that Chelsea drop off slightly um, in the three months. He was only gone for three months with a skull fracture, which is phenomenal really. Um, admittedly, yeah, goalkeeper is not going to be contesting headers or anything, but still that's a dramatic turnaround. Chelsea were on level points with Manchester United in the title race at the time of that injury at the Medeski Stadium against Reading. Obviously, Petrek could now become synonymous with a skull cap. He returned after that injury in October in January, which is ridiculous. And by the time of his return, Chelsea had lagged six points behind Manchester United in the league. And instantly after initial loss to, I think it was Liverpool, he'd go 810 minutes without conceding a goal, breaking that particular record for a time until the, the next man on this list takes over him. And if Petr hadn't have been injured, you can easily argue that that Chelsea would have won the league. I think it was about four or five points that man, that Chelsea ended up losing the league title on. And admittedly, the final day they drew, I think, 
maybe getting years mixed up with that one, but they uh, sort of slinked off towards the end when the title was out of grasp. They got that nil-nil draw against Man United when they were already champions. That famous picture of Dong Fangzhou um, <laughs> in the, um, the pre-match there. And um, Petacek, yeah, instantly was a hero, a legend, probably now easily uh, Chelsea's best ever goalkeeper. And he was the difference. His well, his absence was the difference between Manchester United losing out for fourth season in a row in a league title and then continuing up that search for their own dominance. Maybe it would have come because Cristiano Ronaldo and Wayne Rooney, etc., all converging on one sort of thing there and then obviously would become European champions against Chelsea in 2008 where Petrček saved, saved a penalty off Cristiano Ronaldo, but unfortunately it wasn't to be as Edwin van der Sar, our next selection, saved two on that night and Petrček would be the man between the sticks for Chelsea until 2015 where he went to Arsenal and whether it was a change of club, whether it was a change of manager, philosophy, etc. Just never really looked comfortable at Arsenal, especially in the latter years there. Petrček will forever be the first Chelsea goalkeeper to win the Champions League easily. The um, best for Chelsea in their 2012 when Chelsea won the, won the Champions League, of course, and of course... Petacek holds the record for the most clean sheets in Premier League history with 202. And for me, like Peter Schmeichel, for a time, Petacek was probably the best goalkeeper in the world at the time. Maybe along the same lines as his 2012 opponent there, Manuel Neuer. Maybe Ika Casillas, although getting towards the end of his career there. But Czech was definitely, as Gav Max says, definitely in the conversation, not only for the best Premier League goalkeeper of all time, but for the best uh, goalkeeper in the world of his time, at least. And finally, just for our big four, we've got Edwin van der Sar, suggested by Harry Holland. And when Fulham signed him upon their promotion in 2002, it was a really bizarre signing. Obviously, Fulham was spending quite a lot of money. They always seem to do, don't they, um, when they come up, especially more recently. But the signing then, it was, it was very bizarre. He always felt... The player is one of those signs where the player feels bigger than the club almost. Van, Edwin van der Sar was a Champions League finalist with Juventus. Champions League winner with Ajax in 95. And uh, as Gav Max says in the, the in the Twitter thread, he's, he kind of felt that his career might have been over to an extent. Sort of kind of settling. It's like when Chris Samba went to QPR for some unknown reason when they were obviously battling the relegation, obviously turned his career a lot. That could have happened to Edwin van der Sar. And he was a substantially a good goalkeeper for Fulham. He wasn't pulling up trees, neither were Fulham, to be fair. They were sort of hovering around mid-table, simply existing at the time. And then I I don't know whether he would have gone back to Holland, gone back to Italy, just gone back to Europe as a whole if Manchester United didn't come in for him after those four years. But I think he probably prolonged his career signing for Manchester United, being that long-term successor finally after Peter Schmeichel would sign for Man United in 2005 and he would retire in his 40s as a result so that probably prolonged his career and perhaps it's like Petrček's injury there it's perhaps not a coincidence that when United finally got an established goalkeeper Manchester United returned to glory it was the worst of times for Sir Alex Ferguson in the Premier League era we must not forget as well with the Invincibles Mourinho as we've discussed and with Van der Sar as the number one, Ferguson then begins to build from the back. You've got Nemanja Vidic, Patrice Evra, 
Bandersat all came into the club within the space of six months, all stalwarts in their own right, obviously joining uh, Gary Neville and Rio Ferdinand there for the back five, which probably is now, you've got to say, Man United's best ever defensive five, because obviously the, the default was back four of those days. That's their best ever defensive. They were, never, they were always fairly frail. It was always score more than you type of approach from United especially in the 90s but when it gets more tactical in the 2000s when Ferguson's more reverting to a 4-3-3 or 4-2-3-1 as opposed to the traditional 4-4-2 in English football this was definitely a sea change obviously Van der Sar would win the Premier League four times 2007, 2008, 2009 and the 2010-11 season his final year as a professional he made three Champions League finals in this times Man United were entirely dominant one one of them of course saving from Nicola and Elka and it just goes to show how big a deal van der Sar was on this new this transition of a new defence here with the fact that Edwin van der Sar broke Petr Cech's record for the most minutes without conceding a goal not only broke it but absolutely obliterated it 1,311 minutes without conceding a goal between November and February phenomenal record really and obviously United in that time would win I think it would have been the League Cup the Premier League obviously got to the Champions League final as well we're on for a quadruple at a time and Van der Sar has seventh most clean sheets in Premier League history 132 the majority of those coming for Manchester United so as we wrap up this little segment we've got a few of my own suggestions so we've got a few segments here contemporaries so Edison is definitely one. Alisson, two Brazilian examples, which has probably marked a transition that started more so in in Germany and in Spain at the start of the 2010s, but it took a while to get to England with the ball playing goalkeepers, which I'm still waiting for a still waiting for an FM football manager play a role on that one, but it may, it may be more sweeper keeper, yeah, and those were huge proponents of that um, David De Gea and Hugo Lloris less or probably more traditional approach from the goalkeepers they can definitely be factored into the best ever Premier League goalkeepers at least long list anyway but for me looking back nostalgia eyes this is the Naughty's Nostalgia podcast obviously I love a classic mid-table goalkeeper that just stays at one club it seems Tim Flowers was one Mark Schwarzer for Middlesbrough Brad Friedel for Blackburn, Casey Keller for Leicester, Yossi Askelainen for Bolton, Thomas Sorensen for Sunderland, the loyalty for goalkeepers in Shaka Hislop for West Ham as well, Nigel Martin for Leeds, Tim Howard for Everton, who's less, less loyal really, but you in the 90s and in 2000s really had all these goalkeepers that just simply stuck with one club. There was more moving around, obviously, as we get to the 2010s, David James moved around a lot and his longevity probably deserves a shout. 169 clean sheets, which is the second most in Premier League history, mainly because obviously all the clubs that he's played for in the, in and amongst the 90s, the 2000s, and probably lapsed into the 2010s, although he may have gone to Bristol City by that point. Joe Hart's a, probably an underrated goalkeeper for how his career's sort of trajectory has gone at the minute. And uh, he's 11th in the all-time Premier League clean sheets list with 127. Pepe Reina, I think he's a bit like Hugo Lloris. He never gets called the best. He never gets lumped in with the the Petr Cechs, the Van der Sars of his era, of his little five five to seven years that he had in the Premier League. But six 
six most Premier League clean sheets. And for me, like Lloris, probably amongst the outer fringes of this conversation for me and always, I can't remember much of a huge error he made. He had that one for Andy Johnson's goal in the Merseyside derby. But aside from that, I'm struggling to think. And he came into Liverpool when they just won the Champions League. Jersey Dudek, a hero of that night in Istanbul and Pepe Reina just took over seamlessly. And he loved to start a counter-attack goal. I remember one was against Aston Villa for Liverpool where he rolls it out to Xabi Alonso, Alonso to Torres' goal. And he was... There's a couple of examples of him doing that and pretty much scoring goals, helping Liverpool get on the board there and um, deserves to be mentioned, I feel, in um, this conversation at least. After this short break, we'll be discussing, since it's international break time, isn't it really? We'll be discussing the biggest teams to fail to qualify for the World Cup, at least in my my, um, lifetime at least. We are discussing the biggest teams to fail to qualify for the World Cup since it is in uh, World Cup qualification, the thick of World Cup qualification right now and discussing teams that fail to qualify for the World Cup in my lifetime. I've got a, an honourable mention because it's not <laughs> strictly in my lifetime. Argentina in 1970, not qualifying for that tournament, then going on eight years later under iffy circumstances, let's say, to win the host World Cup in 78 and 86, of course. Um, France 1990 as well, and uh, we'll be discussing more about France as we uh, get into it. But these are the biggest names for me anyway. And of course, since we're since I'm English at least, we may as well start with England, aren't we, in 1994. So it was a downward spiral really, wasn't it, from uh, Bobby Robson. He tried to leave in 84, was coaxed back into it, um, tried to give Brian Clough the job famously. The FA weren't having any of that, were they? And... Um, Ahead of the 1990 World Cup was his loyalty came into question, which obviously effectively um, killed his career in um, as England manager, at least. Obviously, with hindsight, we can see who the bad guys there were, weren't, can't we? And uh, this downward spiral after Bobby Robson was keenly felt um, after the superb Italia 90 team, Gaza's Tears semi-final, etc., it really reached its lowest ebb in the qualification for 1994. Graham Taylor did steward England towards the European Championships in 1992. Disaster, really. All they needed to do was beat the host. Sweden didn't. And they were out of the European Championships group stages in 92, much like Bobby Robson did in 88. So there was a... If it was going to be a pattern, that must mean that England would make the semi-finals of 94. But unfortunately not. It obviously didn't help Graham Taylor that he was a... Followed around by a documentary crew for some time, heavily parodied. Then a couple of years later in the Mike Bassett England manager film, heavily. A lot of the quotes, a lot of mannerisms there transplanted onto Ricky Tomlinson's character in that. Obviously he was a fantastic football manager, did wonders with Watford and then it only takes a couple of years for him to be turned into a laughingstock really with the... uh, turnips and root vegetables all that bollocks on the front of tabloid newspapers obviously again mimicked on Mike Bassett's film there and for me the England job remained a poison chalice at least in the media for quite a long time after this Kevin Keegan felt the pressure in 2000 re- resigning there so then Gordon Hickson was famously hounded for years by the media for one reason or another Fabio Capello struggled Roy Hodgson struggled Steve McLaren obviously struggled and it remained a chalice for poison chalice for so long 
up until probably you got to say Gareth Southgate. Obviously, Sam Allardyce was involved in a media sting and a hit job there by a tabloid newspaper. And it's only now, probably around the build-up to the World Cup, where it's become more measured and more more like a normal job and not like a, a life or death job. But have you seen the echoes from Bobby Robson where you start to see the media lampoon um, what should be one of the most revered people and he's definitely revered now in Bobby Robson and taken to a whole new level with Graham Taylor here obviously it did not help the losses to Norway the Netherlands and going behind against San Marino that probably summed it up really inside nine seconds when uh, England needed to but the game was all over then they, they won 7-1 still still uh, did fail to qualify and qualification after this Remained a struggle for quite a while. Obviously, Euro '96 with Terry Venables, they didn't. Um, they didn't have to qualify as hosts, and Venables probably did a good job of leaving early when he did, because obviously he would have um, probably fallen into the media trap sooner or later. As I say, qualification remained a struggle. '98 going out to um, to Italy and just getting a point to slink through. They needed favours from Sweden in 2000. Obviously, David Beckham's free kick in 2002 and needed a draw in Turkey to qualify for Euro 2004. All final day confirmations of qualification there. So let's move on to France. And 1990, as I said earlier, the highest of highs, the lowest of lows. Jean, Jean Tiganat and Michel Platini and co won Euro 1984. Got into semi-finals in 82 and 86 in the World Cup. And Marseille with France's premier club side at the time they conquered Europe Champions League finalists in 1993-91 won one of those who dominate in France Ballon d'Or win it in their midst Jean-Pierre Papin they had players coming through like Eric Cantona David Ginola but they just couldn't get it over the line they went out in the groups of Euro 92 of course and couldn't qualify for the World Cup in 1990 the beasts which qualified ahead of them Scotland <laughs> and they, they didn't concede at home at all couldn't win away, didn't win a single away game. And 1994's omission was probably the most famous. David Ginola's mislaid pass to led to a Bulgarian counter. David Ginola never played for his country again. Bulgaria go through. They would reach the semi-finals. France watched from home. And in a roundabout sort of way, it marked a definitive change in the guard. France put out a completely different team for Euro 96, got to the semi-finals, of course, and then utter domination winning their home World Cup in 98, winning the Euros in 2000. Now moving on to their neighbours, their much maligned neighbours, Italy. Uh, probably more of a shock now with the circumstances of what's come today, or rather this year. 2018, missing out on that World Cup. And unlike others on this list, Italy had the reprieve of getting to the playoffs. Playoffs usually reserved for teams like Germany in 2002, beating Ukraine. France in 2010 beating Ireland, of course, with a handball. Teams that had the safety net of the playoff. Italy had that safety net. Playing Sweden, obviously. Sweden, a huge country. Had game and Sweden just held out. They held out in the semi in the second leg in um, in Milan. And Daniele De Rossi was uh, told to famously get onto the pitch and he told his uh, manager to just simply do one because they needed a striker, famously. And... Italy, as a result, weren't at their first World Cup since the 50s, I think, 1958 maybe. And um, obviously, comes more shocking now when Italy are reigning European champions, aren't they? So, 
on to Portugal now we're going through a carousel of the brightest and best of Europe's football nations here in Portugal if you're a fan nowadays you might be forgiven for thinking they've always been at major tournaments right wrong the 2002 World Cup was only their third ever World Cup so they got to the semi-finals in 1966, the Eusebio team, of course. They went to the 1986 World Cup in a mix of a couple of European championships. There. They got to the semis of 84, but in 1986, they would go out in the groups, of course. And perhaps the 1990 and 1994 World Cups are excusable failures. Um, in 1990, they drew 0-0 with Czechoslovakia on the final game when a win would have seen them through. Czechoslovakia got to the quarterfinals, so there's no real... Kind of touch and go. It's a tough group. Um, 1994, they lost at the San Siro to Italy, which tumbled Portugal out of the two qualification spots. And the draw to Scotland and nil-nil at home was the difference between qualifying and not. But 1998, though, they'd got quite deep in the European Championships. They got to the knockout phase in 96, got to the quarterfinals there. So they really had to qualify for that World Cup. They got talent like Jao Pinto, Luis Figo, Sergio Conceição. But they drew away in Armenia. They drew away in Northern Ireland, whilst second place Ukraine won both of those away fixtures. So that was the difference between Portugal getting to the playoffs and not, of course. And, of course, now they've been at 11 tournaments in a row and have won a major tournament in the Euros at 2016 and obviously reached the final in 2004. Now, final European team on this mini tour that we're doing is the Netherlands, of course. And back in 2002... Louis van Gaal was in charge after disappointing the Netherlands they were disappointed when they uh, didn't win the European Championships on home soil sounds kind of uh, high standards but they were playing the best football at the tournament they got to the penalty shootout against Italy of course famously scored one penalty of four and in this game there was it was a, in this group it was a tough group Portugal were in there as well as we said, they've not been in the World Cups in 1986, so maybe the pedigree was with the Netherlands there. Um, Ireland were also in the group. They're always an annoyance, really, especially at this time with the pedigree of players they had. But their history was two World Cups ever. And a sign of things to come, really, was losing to... Uh, going into a 2-0 loss to Ireland in Amsterdam. Obviously, they claw that back. Um, that may have been a warning sign, but they were vastly inferior at home to Portugal, losing 2-0, at least, in the home leg. And Luis Figo and Pauletta dug out a late comeback for Portugal in Porto in the return. And it meant that it was pretty much split into two, this group. You've got Andorra, Cyprus and Estonia, who everyone beat. And then you've got Portugal, Netherlands and Ireland. So it meant pretty much September the 1st, 2001, also known for England 5, Germany 1. But by the by, also Netherlands versus Ireland Lansdowne Road, Dublin, absolutely key. Whoever won that effectively, if they could see out the remainder of the fixtures, which in essence they were likely to do, and the Netherlands did, so did Ireland. So whoever won this game goes through. And famously, Jason McAteer, his goal sunk the Dutch, which put Irish Ireland into the playoffs, a playoff which back then would be a playoff with Iran, which they obviously went through and reached the last 16. Meanwhile, Louis van Gaal was sacked. He would return to the Dutch job after Bert van Marwijk led the Netherlands to three successive losses at Euro 2012. Louis van Gaal transformed the nation 3-5-2, got to the semi-finals in 2014, their best result, obviously, aside from 2010 since the 70s and the days of Johan Cruyff, etc. Total football. 
And it was the first time since 1986 that the Dutch were not at a World Cup. And then fast forward to 2018, where they'd be wishing for Louis van Gaal, um, obviously taking them to the semi-finals of the previous tournament, but they'd failed to reach the European Championships in a time where the competition was expanded to 24 teams, which is an absolute disaster, really, when you think about it. So they failed to qualify for that the first time. They'd failed to qualify for the Euros since, well, 1984, I think. So... It wasn't as disastrous as the 2018 qualification campaign. A loss in Bulgaria was the difference, which, although disastrous, kind of explainable. Um, the only missed out on goal difference from Sweden. So obviously the a loss against Sweden was the difference there. And Netherlands just one of a, a collection of teams who have failed to qualify for the World Cup in my lifetime. Spain are probably the biggest nation on this list not to to qualify for every single World Cup. But again, up until 2010, didn't really have that pedigree. They weren't really seen as a top tier nation, so to speak. Obviously that's transformed now, obviously. So that was the 51st episode of the Nautis Nostalgia podcast. Next week, we're gonna ask you for your best ever Champions League finals, your favorite Champions League finals. I know which one mine is, I know which one are the two probably one or two you can split hairs on that which are the best there and we're also going to be discussing West Ham in the 2000s from the dizzying highs of Europe to the disappointing middles of relegation and a return with the the FA Cup final and another relegation in and amongst but until then until next week see you Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.